Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. In order to support our show, we need the help of some great advertisers. And we want to make sure those advertisers are ones you'll actually want to hear about. But we need to learn a little more about you to make that possible. So go to podsurvey.com slash artofman and take a quick anonymous survey that will help us get to know you better. That way, we can bring on advertisers you won't want to skip. Once you've completed the quick survey, you can enter for a chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card. Terms and conditions apply. Again, that's podsurvey.com slash artofman, A-R-T-O-F-M-A-N, podsurvey.com slash artofman. Thanks for your help. Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. Software is eating the world, or so we're told. Products that once took up physical space can be contained in our smartphones and held in the palms of our hands. Instead of having a record collection, we can now stream any music anywhere and anytime we want. Instead of shelves and shelves of books, we can have access to thousands of volumes in our Kindle app. And instead of stacks of photo albums, we can store virtually unlimited collection of pictures in the digital cloud. But in the cultural background to this digital shift, there's been a silent rebellion brewing. My guest tracks that rebellion in his book, The Revenge of the Analog. Today on the show, author David Sachs and I talk about why we're seeing a return to analog products like vinyl records, hard copy books, and pen and paper. And it's not just because of nostalgia. David goes into detail about the sudden revival of vinyl and turntables and why it's more than just a hipster fad, why hard copy book sales are going up while ebook sales are declining, and why writing with pen and paper unleashes creativity compared to typing or writing on a screen. He then gets into how the internet is counterintuitively driving this upsurge of interest in tangible products and the benefits we get psychologically, culturally, and economically by living in an analog world. After the show's over, check out the show notes at aom.is analog. David Sachs, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me on, Brett. So you got a, a new book out. Uh, when I saw the title of it, I was really intrigued by the title. It's the, the Revenge of the Analog. And it's all about this trend you've been noticing where analog products, things like vinyl records, paperback books, stuff that we thought were going to be dead, are all of a sudden having this weird comeback. I'm curious, when did you when did you notice that this stuff was that we thought was dead because of the internet because of digital technology when did you start noticing it when did you start noticing this trend of the revenge of the analog uh, I, I guess it first kind of um, started appearing to me a decade ago uh, I was living in Toronto and um, you know had just actually uploaded my entire CD collection to iTunes and then you know my roommate and I had figured a way to stream it over the uh, Wi-Fi and it was like that was it we had reached peak digital music and uh, it was almost like that our consumption of music 
disappeared overnight once that happened. And, um, and very shortly after that, ironically, his parents gave us their old turntable and their old records. And I started listening to records again and really getting into it. And I was noticing that, you know, a number of other people I knew who were also really into music were kind of getting back into turntables and records as well. And there were, you know, the music stores were still kind of, I guess, contracting at that point um, in the imagination, but the ones in our neighborhood were doing okay. And there was even like one or two new record stores that were opening up. Um, there were new records, newly pressed records that were available. And I started noticing in other ways, you know, the, the moleskin notebook had kind of become this ubiquitous thing by that point um, where, you know, paperless technology, I mean, things like the Palm Pilot and the Blackberry were supposed to have eradicated that. And, and it just kept getting sort of deep, more deeply ingrained into, um, into the world I knew and the lives of people I knew. And so I, I think what interested me is like, you know, it, it was this, it was this idea that, you know, you look around and you see things that aren't supposed to be happening in, in kind of the, the popular Im imagination in the narrative that we're told about technological progress, which is, you know, the old thing renders is rendered obsolete by the new thing and it disappears and goes away and everything moves forward and on. And, and it was almost like this was happening in a parallel way, right? It, it was, it was you know, the, the old thing had been rendered obsolete, and then it started growing again, even as the digital grew ever more you know, quickly and more powerfully. And it was, it was the beginning of something that I kept watching over the next couple of years, and it just kept getting bigger and having sort of more consequence to it. And especially, it, it was almost as though... You know, the greater and more powerful and more central to our lives digital technology became, the more pervasive this revenge of analog, as I later called it, sort of grew into. And I mean, so that brings my next question. Like, why, what do you think is driving this revenge of the analog? Is it people are just tired of digital technology? Like, they're tired of being able to stream whatever song they want at any place they, they are? Are they looking for, is it nostalgia? I mean, what, what's going on here? What, why, why are people returning back to vinyl records and paper notebooks? Mm -hmm. I, I think there's a number of different factors. It's not just one, and, and it certainly varies by individual. Uh, nostalgia is kind of cited as, as the most common one, and, and I actually don't put a lot of weight in that. Um, you know, Most of this is being driven by people who are in their 30s or 20s or even younger that never touched or knew this technology in the first place. Uh, you know my friend's daughter, who's nine years old, and asked for a Fujifilm Instax, you know, instant film camera last year for her birthday. I mean, this is a kid who's only known photography is something that happens on iPhones and iPads. The other notion that we're sort of tired of digital technology and rejecting it is is also, I think, a false one. You know, most of us who are uh, driving the return of analog things and ideas are as digitally enmeshed in the world as everyone around them. Which is why when you go into a coffee shop and you see someone writing on a moleskin notebook, they have their laptop and their you know phone next to them on the table. I, I think what that shows and what the reality is, is people are looking for a balance in what works for them. Whether it's professionally and the way that they approach their work or their creative tasks, or whether it's personally, how they access culture and entertainment and leisure and um, the things in the world that matter to them. 
And the notion that we want, you know, we're, we will be content with the most efficient thing and one solution, which is what, you know, the iPhone I'm holding in my hand now offers, right? You never need anything but this one thing is one that I think we subscribe to. And now having lived with that technology for 10 years, I'm having seen something like, you know, digital music streaming services be around for a decade. We see that, okay, you can have that, but you also want more, right? It's almost the idea of, you know, once you've achieved all this, all the wealth and affluence or comfort in your life, it's not like you stop there. People are always saying, oh, when I make a million bucks, you know, that I'm going to be set and that'll be it. And, you know, you know, dust my hands off and bada bing, bada boom. But then you seek more. You seek more as a consumer. You seek more from a spiritual perspective or you seek to find the things that work for you, even counterintuitively, right? Like the idea that, you know, something which is going to be the fastest and the best uh, and the most powerful is always going to be access to a computer doesn't necessarily play out when you actually get down to using it. And so for many people, you know, digital has become almost an obstruction to the way they're doing things. And analog provides a bit of a counterweight to that and, it, and just a different process to create things, to enjoy things, to sort of, you know, interact with the world. And so I think it is, it is almost a technological maturity that we're reaching, right? Where we're able to evaluate the strengths of each and say, well, you know, analog works for me here and digital works for me here. And I want, you know, I want both of them. Yeah. And we'll talk about getting more specifics about how different analog things like whether it's music or in books or whatever, the benefits of that you can't go digital. But what I thought was an interesting argument you make throughout the book is that this revenge of the analog in a lot of ways is being powered by the internet, right? This thing that we thought was supposed to replace and sort of kill all this stuff. Like the reason why it's making a comeback is because we have the internet and people are able to find like the moleskin. I mean, the way I discovered the moleskin was on the internet, you know, about 10 years ago when people were making moleskin PDAs and showing how amazing moleskins were for keeping track of your to-do list and whatever. And it's not just that, like other areas, the internet has brought back these, these old things. Yeah, and and I think that is you know that that's the interesting thing, and and why it's not a technological rejection or you know a purely nostalgia based thing, right? In many ways, you know, digital technologies, something like Kickstarter, for example, right, the crowdfunding website, as well as you know Indiegogo and others, have created you know tremendous opportunities for people to build analog products and services, things like you know board games and tabletop games, which previously you know, the barrier to entry was fairly high. You needed to have a publisher, you needed to sell the rights, so on and so forth. Now someone can, you know, come up with an idea and make a quick little video, put it up there, and if it, you know, earns enough backing, then, you know, they're off to the races in production. Uh, the internet has allowed sort of disparate communities of niche users of products like, you know, rare types of film photography, let's say, you know, expired Polaroid film or expired large format film to find themselves from around the world and get in touch, share ideas, Ideas, share projects that we're doing, and again, you know, build these these markets, which can then scale um, at, a, at a pace when you know the the regular large industry is sort of abandoned that at, at an early point. And, and then, of course, you even get into the things like you know manufacturing technologies, things like three D printing, or or the ability to sort of source manufacturing around the world for for specific ideas and products. Again, you know. The, 
all of those who are driving this analog counter revolution, if you want to call it that, um, are using every tool at their disposal to make it happen. They're not dogmatic about it, and, you know, sitting in some basement somewhere, you know, printing out mimeographed paper leaflets that they're handing out from soapboxes, unless that's their that's their jam, you know, and more power to them for that. Oh, so let's talk about this, this, some of the specific um, areas where you're seeing this revenge of the analog comeback. Let's talk about vinyl first. Vinyl, I mean, just a few years ago, vinyl was pretty much dead. Companies, fact, the press companies were shutting down. The ones that were open were open like two or three times a, a week. That was it. But like in the past... I don't know, five years, it's made this huge comeback. There's these companies where you can subscribe to get you know new vinyl records once a month. Turntable sales are just going nuts. Like I, my for my birthday this year, my wife got me a turntable and it's it's been fantastic. I mean, I think it's funny in the book you mentioned uh, like Herp Albert and the Tijuana Brass. Like I, I, I got my dad's old Herp Albert and the Tijuana Brass album and it's fantastic can you give just give us an idea what were vinyl cells like say 10 years ago and what are they like now well the low point you know in was in 2006 that's kind of the the bottoming of, of sales and the sales had been declining really since you know the early 80s when the compact disc came out um so you had sort of initial you know lowering when you know eight tracks and tapes provided the the first competition for vinyl records, and then you know, I think nineteen eighty six or something is 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 when CDs hit the mass market. And, you know, it just sort of steadily declined to there, and then of course downloading and, and so forth. So you know, two thousand and six in the United States alone, you had I think nine hundred and something thousand new records pressed. Right, none of this deals with you know secondhand vinyl. Um, your your dad, my dad's Tijuana Brass, uh, you know, whip, whip Cream and Other Dreams, or whatever it's called, album, right? Every every man of a certain generation has to own that. Just as just an example, so so that's you know half you know less than a million records pressed last year, according to Nielsen, two thousand and sixteen. I think it was as high in the U.S. as as maybe thirteen million records pressed, new records. Um, to say nothing of the trade of sort of secondhand records and and other markets around the world, like the UK and Europe and South America, um, everywhere where vinyl has continued to grow. So you're talking about you know a a thirteen time or more growth in the span of a decade. And, and the growth has been fairly consistent, double-digit growth every single year. You know, Every year there are skeptics saying, well, this is going to bottom out, this is going to crater, this isn't going to last, and every year it keeps growing. And of course, with that goes the sales of turntables, new turntables coming on the market by new companies or old companies reviving turntable designs. In order to service that growing demand, you know, because unlike digital music where you just copy and paste endlessly and it doesn't really matter, you know, you're talking about the physical production of a product, right? Melting pellets of plastic and sandwiching them in these giant waffle presses, which are, you know, record presses, which they don't make anymore. So not only do you have new record pressing companies opening up all around the United States and all around the world and in all these markets to serve them, you ha now have new companies building the record presses to service those. So not only are you talking about the growth 
of people buying records, the growth of people pressing records, the growth of record stores of all sorts of different niches in cities and towns all over the world to serve this growing market. You're talking about all the jobs and the money and the economic activity that's going into that. And people now estimate it's a billion dollar market, right? Or more, which is incredible because when I was interviewing someone, uh, I think he was at either Warner Music or Universal Music, you know, three years ago when I was working on the book, he's like, I doubt this will ever be a billion dollar market. That was his exact quote. And now, you know, it's, it's there. So it, it, the growth has been pretty astounding. And, and I think if you live in any sizable community anywhere, a town, a city, you can see it, right? You see people walking with record sleeves on the street. You see record stores opening up. You see people in Urban Outfitters shopping for a huge selection of records. Urban Outfitters is now the biggest you know, retailer of, of records in the brick and mortar world. And, and it's, to many people, it's, it's this undeniable example of the sort of larger phenomenon that I'm having that's happening. And to other people, they just can't wrap their heads around it. It's just kind of, you know, this back to the future moment that, that they can't square with the logic that, you know, in your phone, you can get all that music for free streamed to you wherever you are without having to put it on a shelf or deal with it or, or pay money for it. So, I mean, what do you think is driving the comeback? I mean, like you said, it is, buying a record is inconvenient, right? You have to go to the store. If you want to play something, you got to put it on the record player. Uh, when one side's over, you got to go and flip it over. Uh, so there is inconvenience. So like, why are people going back to it if it is so inconvenient? Well, let me ask you, why did you want a turntable for your birthday? Uh, I, part of the, the inconvenience was part of the the thing that was surprisingly was the thing that drew me to it. Um, I also just, I got sick of like streaming music devalued music to me. Right. Cause like it's all became it's sort of everything became Muzak. Right. And I, I remembered having albums. Like I had this thing I could heft in my hand. Like this is, I don't know. I like that feeling. And so that's why I got it. Well, that that is, you know, exactly the reason I think most people cite. And um, the key to it is that it is an entirely in a rational, emotional um, pursuit, right? From all logical perspectives, financial, you know, space saving, um, uh, you know, time use, it makes the most logical sense to only listen to streamed music on, you know, some sort of Apple device or, or, or Android device, right? And, and that, that still holds true. But I think what we have to realize is like, we are not logical creatures, right? We are highly illogical creatures. That's what allows us to make things like music, good music, bad music, whatever you have it. I mean, that is, at the core of the human experience. And music is not something that, um, you know, is a necessity is, is so much as, I mean, it's a necessity in some way, but it's not like food or medicine, right? Where we're, you know, seeking, seeking, you know, sustenance or, or, or something at the absolute most logical way. Um, it, it's, it is culture and it is passion and it is an emotional act. And, while digital music allows us to access that in all sorts of different ways, it it does so at the cost of many different points of engagement 
that uh, we've realized, or many of us have realized, yourself and myself included, are actually very pleasurable, right? So, you know, going to a record store and flipping through bins for an hour to find one or two records you might like on a Saturday, you know, when you compare that with tapping on the search bar in Spotify or, or you know, the recommendation algorithm and pulling up something is a highly inefficient act. It's, you know, a waste of your time. It requires you to go somewhere in your car or on your foot. It costs a lot more money. And yet it's so much fun, right? Buying a record at the store is almost half the fun of buying a record. You talk to people, you discover things, you make friendships, you are spending time doing something that isn't just sitting at home looking at the same screen you look at all day. In the same way that having that collection displayed in your house, even though it takes up precious shelf space and it's heavy as hell. And when you have to move, good Lord, you know, get a chiropractor because those boxes of records are some of the heaviest damn things you'll ever have to move. There's a pleasure in that too. You walk in and see the records on the shelf and it's like, you know, that is the, the lion head on your wall if you're a record collector. It is your personal taste there for everyone to see in a way that's very different and much more personal and much more permanent than you know, a curated playlist that you might, you know, share socially on, on a site like Spotify or Apple Music or whatever the, you know, whatever thing you subscribe to for, you know, $8 a month. And I think that's, that, you know, shows the sort of deeper relationship we have as humans have to the physical world and real things, right? They give us a way to interact with the world, with our five senses, and most importantly, with each other that uh, the digital world simply doesn't. It, it renders those things obsolete because of the nature of the efficiency and the communication. Yeah, I, mean, I think that idea, like the, the tangible actually socializing more visceral as well, right? Because like, yeah, you can go over to someone's house, you can flip through their albums or look through their bookshelves and like you can take something out and you, can, you have this conversation that's, Awesome. Then you just you how you can share your whole book collection or your whole CD collect or your music collection to your friend, but it's not the same. Like you can't you won't have that conversation, that same sort of conversation as you would if you were in person holding this object. Right? Could you? I mean, you wouldn't. You know, strike up. You could very easily walk, be walking down the street or in a coffee shop or on an airplane or somewhere, and someone could have a book with them. Right. And you can immediately start a conversation based upon a shared interest in that book. But the nature of you know, digital technology is that there is an element of privacy, a sort of cocoon around it. You're never going to look on someone's screen and say, oh, you're reading that on your Kindle? Oh, cool, I read The Revenge of Analog. It renders it kind of faceless. And, uh, and so it, you know, in many ways, I mean, and there's sociologists that talk about this, you know, these devices that were sort of there to create greater social interactions and experience have in many ways sort of created a barrier to them. Um, we can have these surface interactions and experiences on you know, Twitter and Facebook, but you know, the, the deeper face-to-face interactions, that which we need as human beings in order to thrive and survive in the world, uh, you know, analog still remains the best outlet for that to happen. I also like one of the other things I like about analog products is you can lend it out to people. 
right? Um, I mean, yeah, you, there's like things you you can somehow share your, but like, I love being able to borrow a book from somebody or borrow an album, or if you're, you know, kid from the eighties, like borrow video games, right? I mean, that was just, it was fun. I don't know what it was. And then whenever you see that object in your house, like not only do you think about the, the content in the object, but you also think about the person who owns that object. Like, oh yeah, this was Ben, like this, like it, this is like a part of Ben that I have in my house. And then it makes you, I should reach out to Ben and talk about what I read in his book. Yeah. And, and, you know, as you said, your wife gave you the turntable for your, your birthday, right? I mean, that is every time you look at that turntable, you're going to think of her. My turntable was given to me, my friend, Dave Levy, who's a musician and a DJ, um, and, you know, works, works in human rights around the world. And it, for my 30th birthday in New York, he had an extra turntable and he's like, here you go, man. Here you go. And I, you know, every time I, I put it on, I think about him. And and every year for his birthday, when he comes back to Toronto, I buy him a record as a thank you. I mean, that is that is the basis of a relationship, right? Um, you can't do that in the same way with digital music. You know, someone bought me a subscription to a streaming service once. Yeah, it was cool. You know, and then the next year I had to pay for the subscription myself. You know, how many times have you been emailed some sort of Amazon gift card and you're like, okay, cool. It doesn't, again, hold that same meaning. It doesn't hold that same uh, value. And, and I think, you know, one of the interesting things that I really, that really struck me is, you know, the reasons that you talk about why you wanted a turntable, why you enjoy it. And the reasons that are cited by many people, especially of you know a younger generation, sound is like the bottom one, right? Uh, there's this assumption by you know baby boomers and those older that oh this is a, a new generation of audiophiles and the sound quality is better. But sound quality is highly subjective. I have a lot of sort of old scratchy records that the sound quality isn't necessarily great, and if I listen to that same file on a on on a streaming service, it, it might actually sound better, but. It, the sound is just one element of the experience. Um, and music, like so many other things in our life, is actually more than just the way the information is purely translated. It is an experience that we, we indulge in with all our five senses. And I think that's something that we took for granted for a number of years as we move to digitize things, you know, as quickly as possible. All right, let's uh, shift gears to books because I remember a few years ago, you there wouldn't like a week wouldn't go by when you didn't you know read some article about the the death of publishing, right? That the e-reader was going to kill paperback, hardbound books. Um, but that didn't happen. In fact, I think I read a recent um, study that said that e-readers, like e-books are going down while paperback books and hard copy books are going up. Um, so what's going on there? Why are people returning to dead tree books instead of using the convenience of a, a Kindle reader or something? Well, I, I think it, you know, it, they never even went away. Um, that, that was the interesting thing, that there were these predictions that when the Kindle came out in, I think, 2007 or so, um, uh, this would be it, right? This would be you know, the, the MP3 moment for the publishing industry, and all the publishers were sort of quaking in their boots. And it never really happened. Ebooks have certainly grown. They they own a percentage of the market. You know, Kindles and e-readers and Kobo's and so on. You know, have a percentage too, though that percentage is declining. And their decline is a mix of people's kind of not using them as much. Like I haven't touched my Kindle in a year and a half or two years, uh, as well as you know, competition from other devices where you can just get the Kindle app on your iPad and you don't even need to buy the dedicated device. But I think what you know. The most important thing was is that people 
especially in the, the digital media industry, as well as the publishing industry, they really discounted the value that people place on books as objects. And um, again, it goes back to what I was saying about records, right? It is an illogical thing, even more so. Information, if you buy you know, a copy of The Revenge of Analog on Kindle or Kobo or Nook or whatever, you're going to pay less money for it. And the information in is the exact same. You don't get any extra words. Right, you don't get any fewer words either. When you go out and pay, you know, twenty six dollars or whatever it is for the hardcover version of that book, you're getting a, a chunk of dead tree um, with some some letters printed on it, and it's the exact same as the other one. You know, I, I just got recently like some statistics from my publisher about how the book's doing. You know, take a guess at what percentage of the Revenge of Analog was sold in digital. Um, I'm going to say 25%. I think it's like 8%, which is fairly standard for, you know, most, you know, mass market um, um, books out there. There's certain areas, romance, fantasy, self-published, where ebooks are, are, are certainly statistically much higher. But, you know, your average sort of nonfiction book that might be on the bestseller list or, or fiction book is, you know, a relatively small percentage, which represents the percentage of sales, you know, for the publishing industry overall of, of what those books represent. So why is it? Why is it that people will still go out and, and pay for these, you know, stacks of dead shredded trees with ink on them? Uh, what is it about it? It's, again, the relationship we have to books, right? What they represent, what they symbolize. They are aspirational capitalism at its finest. Um, we have a very strong emotional attachment to them. The idea of having a bookcase filled with books in your house is, you know, that is, that is it. You are, you, you have arrived as, as a member of the, you know, educated middle class. And I think it goes back to childhood. I have two very young kids. Um, you know, a three and a half year old who's a voracious little reader, um, uh, with me reading to her, of course, and, and, you know, a seven month old. And, uh, you know, books are their life. Books are everything, uh, especially to the older one. I mean, you know, a night without three stories or four stories with a whole lot of begging in it, it is, there's no bedtime. I mean, it just, it wouldn't happen. So it's such an ingrained, part of the way we live and see the world. But it, it's also something that, again, has those same tactile advantages. You can loan a friend a book. You can mark them up. You never have to worry about the battery failing. Uh, they can last for hundreds and hundreds of years. You can give them as gifts. You can give them away. You can do whatever you want to them. Um, and, and they remain there. It is very much the sort of perfect form for how we love to absorb information. And, and so they prove resilient. And I think, you know, very little is going to come and change that simply because it's, it's proven to be something that we actually want and desire. Right. I think I read also another study that, um, that came out not too long ago that people actually retain information better when they read from a printed page compared to from when they read on a screen. Um, it's something about the tangibility of the thing that helps supposedly, but I've noticed that myself when I read on a screen, I just tend to skim, but when I read a book, like a physical book, I, uh, I, I'm more absorbed in the process. Yeah. And, and, you know, listen, I, I used my Kindle almost exclusively for a year or two and read some fantastic books on it and, and it didn't diminish those books in any way. But, you know, what, what was interesting was when I began research in this book, I got a library card. 
um, you know, Toronto Public Library. And I started out taking out books for research that I didn't necessarily want to own. Um, I just needed to read, you know, a, a little bit of, take some notes and, 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 uh, and send them back. And so I remember reading the, the first book and paper that I read, you know, after a year and a half of using the Kindle. And it was just instantly, like, within two pages, I was like, oh yeah, I like reading this way so much more. That was it. There wasn't, there was no overt reason why. I mean, one of the things was knowing where a page is and knowing where you are just by sort of sense and feel, right? Instead of having the little numerical, oh, you're, a, you know, 10% done or you're, you're on page 106 of, you know, 252, you could feel it. You could flip. You could skim back. You didn't have to deal with menus and options. It, it's the simplicity of an act that we've known again since you know we were young children. I, I watch my three, you know, my seven-month-old. You know, now he knows how to flip back and forth in his little, you know, five-page Sandra Boynton picture books. Um, you know, he'll grab the page and flip it back and then put it in his mouth and vomit on it. But you know, the, there is something again inherently hardwired into our brains about that. And that's because we are tactile creatures, right? We like to touch. We have our five senses and we like to use them. And the more we use them, the more we get out of something, which is why, you know, the, the, the digital world, which limits us to sort of taps with a fingertip on a, on a flat textureless piece of glass, doesn't give us that same sensory feedback. Yeah, you just brought up another reason I just remembered why I am sort of returning to paperback books and music. This is going to sound really tinfoil hatty, but like when you buy like a d- ebook or mu- digital music, like you read the, the terms of service, like you really don't own it right? Like you're sort of renting it from Amazon or whatever. And like, they could take that back. They could delete it right from your device and you couldn't really do it. You don't have much recourse going on. And so like, but when you have like an actual object, like Amazon can't come into your house and steal it because like there's laws that can say, no, you can't do that. So that's another reason. Like I just want, I, I like knowing that I own my culture. Like this is mine. You can't take it back or delete it accidentally or whatever. Yeah. And I don't think, you know, it's, 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 it's too crazy what you're talking about. I mean, I had, before I had a subscription to Spotify, I had a subscription to RDO, which was a competitor. It raised, you know, a couple hundred million dollars. Um, and I had, you know, I, I liked it better than Spotify. And I had all sorts of albums saved and playlists that I'd made because I listened to digital music when I'm, you know, in the car or walking, when I can't lug my turntable around with me. And then it went bankrupt. And it was like, they sent a little thing. It's like, hey, you know, we're really sorry we've gone bankrupt or we've been bought by Pandora and we're going to be absorbed into their company. As of Monday, your service will be done. And that was it. It was like, poof, everything was gone, right? All the albums I'd saved, all the things I'd done was gone. But, you know, unless someone breaks into my house or there's a fire or a, a flood, my records will be there. And they are to do with whatever I want to do with them. If I want to give them away, if I want to sell them, if I want to store them, if I want to crack them over my knee, I can do whatever I want with them. It's my property. I think they're... You know, this notion that we would move beyond an ownership society is one of these fantastical ideas that gets ballied about in kind of, you know, Silicon Valley utopian circles um, that goes against human nature and, and what we like about the world and how we want to interact with the world. So let's move back onto paper, right? So that's another thing. Like, I remember my uncle said this a while back, and this was like two decades ago, that, uh, 
It's like, yeah, you know, they've been saying we're gonna have a paperless office, but like, there's more paper than ever. Like, I feel like I have more paper, and that that's gotten true. Like, even with these new devices that have made, you know, given the possibility of paper becoming obsolete, we are still drawn to paper. And in the book, you talk about, you know, the moleskin notebook, but there's other things out there like field notes that are uh, really popular with people. What's the obsession there? Why are we so drawn to tactile writing technology, like just the old fashioned pen and notebook? Because it works, right? If you want to have an idea that pops into your head and there's a pen and a paper sitting there on the desk next to you and there's you know a laptop or a smartphone what is the quickest easiest way to get that idea down without any distractions it's it's the pen and the paper right it it is it is instantaneous and you're not restrained by what the software commands you to do if i wanted to take a note on the computer i have to go open up a program figure out where to save that file save the file figure out the format that i want to write it in and i can only write what it will allow me i can't doodle in some way i can't fold it over i can't scribble things out uh, which is why you know at the the biggest most successful tech companies whether it's amazon or google or facebook you know on the desks of the brilliant engineers and creatives that work there you have you know, people using moleskin notebooks or field note notebooks or just good old pieces of scrap paper or whiteboards, because uh, again, it is it is the the shortest way for an idea to leave your brain and enter the physical world in some sense of permanence. And I think it's it's incredibly useful to have that balance, right? Um, so yeah, there's the idea of you know having to format it and and all that and all those simplistic things. But again, it's it gives you the opportunity to do things in a way that's entirely unique to you. Whereas if I'm typing a note on my computer, you know, it's formatted in the same way that, you know, Microsoft Word tells all documents to be formatted. Or the amount of work that I have to go into to make it unique is is, you know, a, a step away from just getting that idea out there. It doesn't mean that everybody is going to move back to um, you know, writing things on paper and then banging out ideas on typewriters. There is a point where moving Back to the digital provides so many advantages, and and it's just better. I you know I didn't write this book on a typewriter; I wrote it on a computer. Um, I'm a much faster typer than I am with handwriting, and my handwriting is atrocious and barely legible. But it it allows me to think in a way, almost out loud, that I can't do in the same way on a computer when I'm typing. Uh, and, and so it it proves very useful to people because it. It is, it's a siloed act. When you're writing something in a notebook or a piece of paper or on a whiteboard, you're just writing something, right? You're not trying to do 10 other things at once. You're not being distracted by multiple tasks coming in. You're not trying to merge it with images and video like a PowerPoint presentation, which are the worst things in the world. You are, you are, you know, there with the simplicity of your idea and working through it in a way that allows it to be seen, but also very quickly changed and edited that doesn't feel precious. Um, that just works. And, and I think that's it. I think at the end of the day, you know, beyond the romantic notions of, you know, you know, Hemingway and Picasso using the notebook of to create like Moleskin uses, or you know, the great American field notebook of of you know great American workers like field notes uses or whatever it, it happens to be, you know, it just works for people, 
right? It just works. Yeah, I was I was actually talking to an architect friend of mine about this topic. He's been in the, in the field for over 30 years. So before CAD really took on, and he mentioned that one of the saddest things that's happened in architecture in the past you know 20 or so years is that this over-reliance on computer programs to design architecture. Because before you, an architect, would just take out some paper, a blue and just like draw, like freehand draw with the ruler. And he said, you get these beautiful designs that would just look aesthetically pleasing, but were also uh, architecturally sound. But he says, now people just go to the computer. It's fast because there's these pre-programmed things that, you know, they'll tell you, you, you draw a line, it'll tell me how many studs you need, everything's done, but like it limits what, it limits creativity. And he says like, our architecture has suffered as a result of that. Yeah, the, there's interesting studies around that, around architecture and design. Um, you know, one of the reasons why I, I interviewed someone uh, named John Skidgel who works at Google. He's uh, one of their sort of chief designers of user experience and, and user interface. So how all Google products, websites, Gmail, whatever, how they look and how they work. And he he created this course for teaching other designers and employees at Google how to draw things by hand on paper. And it since became mandatory pretty much for, for everybody at Google who works on these types of products. And he explained to me why. He said, because you know, the software creates a bias, right? It it will always steer you in the direction of what it wants you to do or what's going to be easiest or most standardized. And that's because the nature of software is to standardize things. You, you create one set of software and, and it has a set of rules and those rules go out to every edition of that software. And you can move, but you have to move within the bounds of the rules, right? On paper, you really only have to move within the bounds, the physical bounds of the page, but you can do whatever the hell you want there. And so with Google, you know, the, and, and many ad firms and, and now, you know, some architecture firms, the idea is when you are working on an idea for something at the first stage, let's say designing a building, right? Don't go to the computer first. Go to paper first. Get your idea out, scribble it, squiggle it. Doesn't have to be perfect. Imperfection is actually the goal. And then once you have it down of what you want and what you're working, then transfer it into the computer, then scan it, then you know, rework it and then work on the fine details and figure out how many studs you need and what type of steel and what angle that has to be at um, so that the thing doesn't collapse on your head. And and I think it's it is you know fundamentally what we're talking about here is re-embracing a kind of imperfection in the world right and saying look we we have built these wonderful one size all fits solutions for every sort of aspect of our life but we don't live in a one size all fits world and um and it's actually not advantageous to us all the time let's talk about you wrote an article for esquire uh, magazine not too long ago. I remember this article. It was near the front of the magazine. That's why I remembered it. And that's I think that's where I found out about your book, this book that we're talking about right now, about men and collecting stuff. Because we've written about collecting stuff on the site before as like this hobby and like stuff guys collect. And peop- guys love to talk about their collections. But this digital world makes it harder and harder to collect stuff because you have you don't have albums to collect, you don't have books to collect, so you're kind of left collecting other stuff. Why do you think it's so important for guys to have a collection and and why do you think men and I think women might have this draw but I think men have this draw I, I know I like stuff more than my wife I like to collect weird knickknacks what is it about stuff and collecting things in men I, I think it really is you know very primal right we 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 are you know the hunters and um, and we want our conquests there on the wall I'm sitting here in my home office you know I have 
you know, an award, one of my books won and some article about another one of my books and, you know, the, the poster for the launch party of this book, um, they're, they're up there. I have, you know, stacks of different books that I bought, which I've probably read once and will never read again. And I resist every time my wife's like, Con Mari, we have to clean out the house. We have to clean this out. Too much stuff. I'm like, no, don't touch it. Don't touch that book. I have, an emotional attachment to it. I want to see that. I just want to know it's there. I, it's it's again. It's it's an inexplicable thing, but it it gives us. I think it gives us a sense of grounding, right? You know, we live in a world where increasingly the pace of change is so fast, and uncertainty is the norm. Whether we're talking about economic uncertainty, technological uncertainty, or you know, political uncertainty. And, and we need things to sort of ground ourselves to and anchor ourselves to. And, and so there's comfort in that, right? There is comfort in, in, you know, again, when you're feeling anxious, you know, going to that record collection on your shelf and just rubbing your fingers along the spine and picking out something that resonates with you, uh, whether it's at a breakup or a time of, you know, economic or familial uh, uncertainty in your life. These, these items are, you know, more than just kind of the lion heads on our wall. They're, they're security blankets in some ways. They're, they're what grounds us to the past, right? Oh, this album is, you know, I remember getting this album on my first date or, you know, when I graduated college or whatever. And that I think makes us more human. I, I think the idea that, you know, we as men must always be moving forward and moving on and, you know, you know, smashing the past um, and disrupting, disrupting, disrupting. It, it, it doesn't leave us with much to hold on to. Um, we need to be rooted in, 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 in some sort of sense of a personal identity. And, and sometimes that rooting happens with physical things. Um, and so it's, you know, collecting it, whether it's a, like, you know, a collection of beer cans or, um, you know, of, of like stupid t-shirts. My brother, remember those big Johnson t-shirts? My brother had like, at one point he like had like 10 of them. I don't know. You know, it's like every time we went on vacation, yet. I mean, you know, sports memorabilia, like there was no reason to own, you know, Michael Jordan shoe for $2,000. But I know people who do because it gives them some sense of who they are that they can look at and be like, this is my value, right? This is what I like. David Sachs, thank you so much for your time. It's been a pleasure. My guest today was David Sachs. His book is Revenge of the Analog. It's available on Amazon.com and bookstores everywhere. Try picking it up uh, in a hard copy book instead of a digital one. Go along with the theme of the podcast. Um, make sure to check out our show notes at aom.is slash analog where you can find links to resources where you can delve deeper into this topic. Well, that wraps up another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. For more manly tips and advice, make sure to check out the Art of Manliness website at artofmanliness.com. As always, appreciate your continued support. If you can give us a review on iTunes or Stitcher, that helps us out a lot. Until next time, this is Brett McKay telling you to stay manly. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. 
Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.